Hear ye, hear ye. My name is Ursula Sojes, and I am so happy to be here with Robin Sojes. We are here for another hot drop in black history. Robin, state your claim before the people. Hello, Justice Riders. This is podcast number four in the podcast series titled Black Sugar, Not So Sweet. We are the Society of Justice and Equality for the People of Sugarland, and as we stated in earlier podcasts, we are here to give you information that is going to honor, educate, and heal. Because as the African proverb states, until the lion learns how to write, every story will glorify the hunter. So this podcast title is, Who Were the Old 443? The Old 443 refers to the 443 African Americans who came with the Old 300. Now, the Old 300, they are the people who were part of Stephen F. Austin's colony. He was given 300 grants from the Mexican government to give to families, to entice them to leave their homestead, to come to this area of Mexico, to colonize it into what is now Texas. So the story of Texas cannot be told without recognition of the contributions of African-Americans. African-descended people, they came to the state of Texas and they have encountered incredible difficulties, but they continue to build communities and create identities throughout their presence in this state. Now, while Texans continue to work towards equality and justice, African-Americans remain an integral part of the largest story of the state of Texas. People of African descent are some of the oldest residents in Texas. Beginning with the arrival of Estevanico in 1528. Now, Justice Riders, that was 300 years before Stephen F. Austin or Moses Austin even thought about coming here. African Texans is what we're calling them because they were from Africa. And, you know, now this area is known as Texas. They have a long heritage in this state and have worked alongside Americans of Mexican, European, and indigenous descent to make the state what it is today. So, Robin, can I just add this uh, quick fact about Estevanico? Because I did some research on him. A couple months back, and what was truly impressive about him is that um, he was a Moor, and I hope I'm not <laughs> jumping the gun, no. but he was a Moor from Spain, and he actually understood the indigenous languages. He did, uh, Ursula, and that is why the Spanish people, they included him in the their expeditions, because they needed a translator. They needed someone who would be able to converse, you know, with various uh, different tribes in order for them 
to understand where, you know, the land was, where they would uh, eventually settle. So, yes, he was an instrumental part of the history of Texas. And my curiosity is just really bugging me because I want, how did he know? <laughs> Either he was the same as the indigenous people as a Moor or basically his travels as a Moor. I, I don't know. I don't want to leave speculation, but I need to really seek that out and research that. Yeah, it's no, it's no problem at all. And I encourage justice writers for you all to do research as well because the information that we're giving you is easily found. You can buy books uh, about uh, African-Americans, Africans, uh, people of Mexican descent and others in the creation of what is currently known as Texas. So Escovatico, he, as we stated, was part of the Spanish explorer. Alvar Nunez Cabaz de Vaca. Is that is that correct? Yes, that sounds okay. good to me. Okay. So he was the Spanish explorer. And he was a member of his expedition. And like you said, he knew different languages. And that is why they had him as part of their team. Now, along with other members of the expedition, he was captured by the indigenous people and actually was enslaved for five years. He did escape, and after escaping, he and other members made their way to Mexico. So in 1539, he accompanied a second expedition into the Southwest, seeking what they call seven cities of gold. This time he was actually killed by the Zuni Indians and the expedition failed. Other pioneer Africans accompanied the Spanish into the Southwest, and some even settled in the region today known as Texas. So, a few hundred years later, by 1792, there were actually 34 what they called blacks back then. You know, we weren't known as African Americans or or, you know, Negroes uh, in this part back then, because this was uh, Mexico. And so they actually had a number of what they call mulattoes. And so it was like four t 414 of them. And some of them were free men and women who inhabited Texas prior to the settlement by Anglo-Americans. So you all know by now, most of the African-Americans that came in the 1800s they came to this area as enslaved people. So, in the first families who migrated to this area as a result of Stephen F. Austin's colonization project came by way of water. They came by way of what, they, what, what they're calling a sooner, and that's a boat. And the name of the boat was called the Lively. And this Lively actually came here by way of New Orleans, to, to Galveston in 1822. As you stated in podcast two, the colonization decree required that all the lands should be occupied and improved within two years. Most of the settlers were able to comply with the terms because they had free labor, right? Ursula, yes, free labor. The African-American people who came here 
They were brought here to plant the crops like corn, cotton, sugar, harvest the crops, prepare, and even cook the crops. All of the hard labor for nothing. So how many grants were issued? In all, 307 titles were issued, with nine families receiving two titles each. The majority of the colonists were from what was known as the Trans-Appalachian South, with the largest number being from Louisiana, followed by Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, and, of course, Missouri. Because Missouri, that's where Moses Austin lived at the time when he came to San Antonio in order to request a grant. And virtually all of these people were of British ancestry. Some of them came and they were already with means. You know, many of them already had enslaved people. Many of them already had plantations. But some of them, they came because this was a new beginning for them. So the number of grantees, excluding Austin's own grant, was actually 297, not 300, although they're known as the old 300. So in 1825, when the census was taken, there were 1,790 settlers, mainly mainly European Americans and a few free African Americans, as well as 443 African Americans. Wow, they took the census that early. So, as I stated in podcast two, Stephen F. Austin was given five grants in total to recruit 2,000 families to this area. So, please know that the Mexican government was opposed to slavery. But even so, there were 5,000 enslaved African Americans in Texas by the time of the Texas Revolution in 1836. So looking at 24 years later, by 1860, it grew from 443 African-Americans by 1860, 182,566 enslaved African-Americans, over 30% of the total population of the state according to the Texas State Library. And listen to this, Justice Riders. Fort Bend County was 90% black and 10% white in 1860. So the entire foundation of Fort Bend County, including the plantation, the sugar industry, the infrastructure, including the railroad, the roads, the sugar mill, the paper mill, the stores, the houses, et cetera, were mainly built by the African-American people. They received none of the credit in any of the textbooks, websites, or Fort Bend museums. You can't tell, even though this is true historical facts, it does not show anywhere. Exactly, Ursula. That is why Soldiers is telling our story. And as I stated earlier, as the proverb goes, until the lion earns the right, the hunter will win. They're always going to win. So that's why we're here to educate, honor, and heal. And so I want to read just a paragraph from an enslaved lady 
who wrote about her experience who lived back then during the 1800s. This would just tell you what was in her head about how she was treated. So this was a slave narrative? This is a slave narrative. Do okay. you want to read it, Ursula? No, Robin, do us the, do us the honor. Me? Okay, Justice Riders, just hold on to your seat, because here we go. The slaves was about the same thing as mules or cattle. They was bought and sold, and they wasn't supposed to be treated like people anyway. We all knew that we was only a race of people, as our master was, and that we had a certain amount of rights, but we was just property and had to be loyal to our masters. It hurt us sometimes to be treated that way. Some of us was treated, but we couldn't help ourselves and had to do the best we could, which nearly all of us done. No, wow. Okay, so that was done by that was Miss Molly Dawson. She was enslaved in Navarro County, Texas. And some people may be listening and wondering why does this matter? You know, that was so long ago. I've heard it all. Mm -hmm. People have a hard time trying to understand why we're even going through the trouble. But in order to educate, you have to tell people, right? Right. In yeah. order to honor, you have to acknowledge these people, right? In order to heal, you actually have to know what's going on, know and understand what happened to you so that you can begin the process of healing. And it's very important for us to understand as African-American people what has processed in our lives because some of us don't know as you go generation down generation you have no understanding of what happened you're not even told because people have kept quiet about certain things because it was so painful yes um that was an actual account yes. of someone that actually experienced that traumatic uh lifestyle as a slave yes so that's, that's why it's so important so that we can hear her perspective as a black woman. That is so true, Ursula, because you will read and your children, if they're going to be going to school in Texas, they will hear about the old 300. When you go to museums, when you go to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, when you go to George Ranch, you will hear about, oh, they were part of the original 300, Stephen F. Austin's colony. And they will say, and there were 443 slaves. They never acknowledge those 443 as actual human beings. And that's why we're telling this story, because people got to understand that they were people, and they had children, and they had a religion, and they also had a mind, and they were also creative. And so what soldiers, what we're doing is giving you information to make sure that all people can be honored for the mm -hmm. contributions that they brought to making the state of Texas the great state that it is today. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll say this. I enjoy humanities. I enjoy learning about various cultures outside of the African-American community. But I do understand the importance of learning about African-American history in America because it's so hidden. 
it's so discouraged. And this is not to harm anyone or badger anyone. This is to bring to light what has been shoved into the darkness. That is so true. And a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about the dark past because they say, oh, well, that was in the past. Let's just move forward. But until you are healed, it really is hard to value the contribution of all people. Mm -hmm. Now, just as writers, before we see how many of the 443 we can actually assign to a family, because as I said, they actually came with the Anglo uh, settlers to this area. It's important to know that the land selected by these colonists were along the rich bottomlands of the Brazos, Colorado, San uh, Bernard Rivers, extending from the vicinity of present-day Brenham, uh, Lagrange to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, according to the terms of the colonization agreement, because this was an agreement from Mexico, each family engaged in farming was to receive one labor, and that was about 177 acres, and a league, which was 4,428 acres. Because of the obvious advantages a sizable number of the colonists classified themselves as stock raisers, though they were technically planters. So each family's uh, league was to have a frontage on the river or a water body equal to one-fourth of its length. The reason why I'm telling you about this is because back then this land was so plentiful that the earliest settlers, they had the option of pitch, picking their homestead. So in order for Stephen of Austin to leave a legacy, he wanted the best to come to Texas. He wanted educated and oh, the ones that were considered like uh, law or they were, had uh, experience in medicine or even in agriculture. So he gave an incentive of 50 acres as a bonus for every African-American person they brought with them. Stephen F. Austin knew that without the talent, expertise, hard working, and dedication of the African-American people, there was no chance of colonizing this area of Mexico because it was all land. So in order to avoid problems with his colonists, he generally only accepted what he calls better classes. <clears throat> there were only four out of the 297 uh, grantees who were considered illiterate. The majority of the other ones, they did have a degree of education. So just to let you know, by 1825, 69 of the families, and I told you there were 297 of them, they actually owned slaves. So there were at least 69 plantations back then. The 443 enslaved African-Americans accounted for 25% even back then. And as I stated earlier, by 1860, we were 90% of Fort Bend County. Mm -hmm. So I think you may have said it in one of the previous podcasts, but I read it somewhere too the other day that Fort Bend County was responsible for some of the biggest plantations. Yes, Ursula. 
and wait till you hear how big these plantations were. And this is in the very beginning. The biggest in the whole state of Texas. The whole state. And you're going to hear about that in a minute. But I'm only going to start in Sugarland because, you know, we're talking about the justice and equality for the people of Sugarland. So we're not even going to tell you all about the San Antonio's and Austin and, and all the other areas. We focus most, for the most part on Fort Bend County, but the biggest plantation was sort of up in, in I believe, Walla County. I'm going to tell you about that in a minute. So let's start with the plantations in Sugarland. Alexander Hodge had a plantation called Hodges Bend, and he has seven enslaved African-Americans who live there. Hodge and his family, they came here in 1826, and it was situated on a road running from Fort Bend to Harrisburg. The place where the Sugarland 95 are laid to rest, that falls entirely within the Alexander Hodge League. So you can see where his league was. It was right here, right near Telfair, and Justice Riders. Those houses in Telfair, oh, they start at $450,000 for a houses. small mansion. And they go up to about $2 million. This is not an active advertisement. No, I'm just saying. Those houses are huge. (laughs) So that actually falls within the Alexander Hodge League. And so while he did not serve in the Texas Army, his sons did take part in part of the Texas uh, Revolution. Now, in 1840, his son, listen to this, Justice Riders. He purchased 1,200 acres from what they call the Mills in Battle League. That one was right next to the Alexander Hodge League. That's where I live, in New Territory. And in the same year, he had nine enslaved people. And they actually had them listed. They said that five were female, ranging in age from four to 50, one was a 45-year-old male. And then that same year, his brother, his name was Albert Hodge. He actually had two enslaved people. One was uh, 14 and one was 37 years old. So were any of those names listed on the record books? No, Ursula. No names of the names of these 443 African-Americans. What they do is they just tell you how many, and it was based off of the census and based on the number of taxes uh, that they paid. So justice writers, listen to this. My son and granddaughter attended Walker Station Elementary School. It's right here in New Territory. So hold on to that name, Walker, because I'm going to tell you where they came from. And all of you who are from Sugarland, Richmond, Roseburg, Stafford, Houston, Missouri City, you will see evidence of everything I'm talking about now when you travel around this area. Because even Missouri City, Missouri came from where Moses Austin was from. You'll see Sweetwater Boulevard because of the sugar and, and other First Colony. And so... The Walker family, they actually bought their land from William Stafford. He had a plantation um, called Stafford's Point. As a matter of fact, that was the first sugar mill in Texas, Stafford's Point. 
Felix Segrist, he came here in 1830. He had nine enslaved African Americans, a male of 45, a female of 50, a female of 20, a male of 18. So what I'm reading to you is although they didn't have the name, they did have the ages. And many times they took on the last name of the person who was the owner of the plantation. So anybody who's doing like Ancestry.com and they're doing research on some of these names, you can just see that they do list the ages of many of the enslaved people. Yeah, because I, I recall going through some records and just could not find anything. So the names of these people just really are not listed. They are not. They are not listed. But they do show a slave census. Like in 1860, it was a slave census of Fort Bend County, and there were 19 enslaved people attributed to Felix Secrets. And it tells you their ages and, and how many people. And then now I'm going to tell you about the largest group because we talked about the largest plantation uh, and who did that belong to. According to the records, his name was Jared Gross, G-R-O-C-E. And he actually brought 90, nine mm. zero African-Americans with him. Now, he was from Virginia and he uh, lived in Georgia. So he may have been more of the richer ones. Yes, he obviously. came here. When he heard about Austin's cheap land and the 50 acres incentive per African-American, mm -hmm. he hurried up mm -hmm. and relocated to Spanish, Texas. In the fall of 1821, he was the first to arrive here. <clears throat> and listen to this, Justice <clears throat> Riders. His plantation was located on the Brazos River, four miles south of the site of present-day Homestead in Waller County. He named his plantation the Bernardo Plantation. And he, like I said, had the first and largest. But can you imagine coming this way with 90 enslaved African-Americans? He had cattle, sheep, hogs, horses, and a caravan of 50 wagons. That, that you street, Hempstead in Houston, <laughs> that street is a long street. <laughs> it really is. It goes through different really? counties. Yes. Oh, wow. He gave five leagues to his daughter, and she, uh, upon her marriage to William Harris uh, Warden, and they had a cotton plantation. It was called Eagle Island. They had 133 mm. enslaved African-American people. The plantation was on Oysters Creek, 20 miles from the Gulf of Mexico in Brazoria County. And so I'm giving you these numbers because all of this area was developed by the enslaved people. And then you had Henry Jones. That remained nameless. I mean, I just have to throw that exactly. in Exactly. only thing we like, know is As if they were no one, as if they were ghosts. A, okay. a ghost, yeah, doing all this work for free. Henry Jones... He had 45 African-Americans come with him in 1822 and settle in Fort Bend uh, County. And then his uh, children, they was all, you know, given land and they lived in areas. This one was called uh, uh, 14 uh, near Big Creek, eight miles below Richmond. And listen to this. 
one of their children, Mary uh, Moore Polly, she married a gentleman by the name of William P. Ryan. And the Ryan's granddaughter, her name was Mamie Davis George. Mm. And her husband, Albert George, Mm -hmm. expanded the Jones property into the George Ranch. I believe it because Mamie George is on a big uh, Catholic Charities building back there. Get out of here. They are really... um, their name stands. Isn't that Richmond. something? Yeah. And I know they're philanthropists, mm-hmm. and I give them much credit because they had that. And Polly Ryan was the, what used to be the name of the hospital that is now Oak Bend. See, I didn't even know that. Yes. See, so Justice Riders, what Ursula and I are telling you, you got to know the history. Mm-hmm. All this came from these leagues, and then the fathers giving land to the daughters who married other people, and mm-hmm. then they. They develop plantations and ranches and so on. But then the African-American community around here has no idea where all of this come from. They no, may, they don't. They may understand who the George family is, but the Polly Ryans and, you know, knowing that history, not understanding why this particular area in which they've lived and raised all their children for uh, uh, generations, why it is the way it is. No, uh, Ursula, you are, you're telling the truth. And that's why, you know, we're getting ready to wrap up this particular podcast because it's important for you to know not only the old 300 and where they came from, but they all brought African-American people with them. And although they don't have their names listed, they at least tell you that they developed the area. And so the people who came with them also assisted with things like planting that cotton and the they corn did and the, the sugar labor for free. I just got to say that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did the labor, but uh, the settlers were like the project managers, if you will, <laughs> giving yes. off the directions and what have you. Yes. So, so Justice Riders, we appreciate your time today. And there are so many other uh, plantations, you know, there's the Calhoun Plantation, Jones High Plantations. It's just so many uh, in this area. And the one plantation I didn't uh, talk too much about because I talked about it before was the Oakland Plantation. And that was the one that was given to Sam Williams. And he gave that land, well, he sold it to his brother, Nathaniel. And they're the ones that had that sugar mill here in Sugarland, that eventually was the site of the Imperial Sugar Company. Mm. So, Justice Riders, we are going to sign off now, and we appreciate your time. Thank you guys for tuning in.